Hello, everybody. So thank you all for coming. This is the second episode of Money Concepts. The purpose of this show, uh, it's like an investment club. We meet every Sunday to discuss fundamental concepts related to finance and investing. Our goal here is to learn from each other and to help each other become better investors over time. So we are going to be meeting from now on at uh, uh, 1 p.m. Eastern, which is uh, 10 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Mountain, uh, noon if you are in central time. And uh, this is a change from last week. So we were previously meeting at 4 p.m. Eastern, but then for uh, some, some people who are trying to uh, attend the call from, from outside the US, uh, they were finding it uh, hard to make that time. So we uh, moved it to 1 p.m. Eastern. So this is going to be the time for uh, future episodes every, every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern. So uh, this, this time we have a guest of honor, uh, Sahil Ketpal. Uh, he is the founder and CEO of this app called Ticker. Uh, many of you may have used this app. So I, I feel very happy that uh, we are only in our second episode and uh, already CEOs are lining up to be guests on our show, which is great. Um, so Ticker is this wonderful uh, app. If you haven't uh, tried it, I encourage you to go and uh, just uh, take a look at what, what are all the features it has and what it can do and so on. Um, so the way I use Ticker is I, I use it for stock research. So I don't have to pull up, say, five different uh, years worth of uh, 10Ks and things like that. Um, Ticker displays all that information for me in one screen. So that makes it easy for me to do research into stocks. And uh, I've been using Ticker only for a few weeks now, uh, but it has already become uh, kind of indispensable for me. So you guys might also find a lot of value in it. Uh, so let me just uh, let uh, Sahil talk about uh, Ticker and uh, his story. Uh, how exactly did he come to found Ticker? What his vision is and so on. And then you guys can ask him questions and uh, find out more from him. So uh, Sahil, uh, if, if you want to take the stage, go ahead. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, perfect. <laughs> so let me just share a little bit about my story um, and then, uh, you know, Ticker and, and sort of our vision for Ticker as well. Um, so in terms of my story, um, you know, I guess my story really begins with my parents. Uh, fairly a classic uh, immigrant story. They basically moved out here, you know, a couple decades ago and, you know, wanted to basically have a better life for their kids. Um, and, you know, they worked hard and, you know, my brother and I were very lucky. We were afforded a lot of opportunities that they were not. Um, and so I think pretty early on, I kind of had this drive to, um, to sort of, you know, make the world a, a better place. And, uh, you know, I, I basically uh, studied hard in school and, and was lucky and, and you know, went to, to Penn, to Wharton uh, to study finance and accounting. Um, I actually originally went there for a dual degree in engineering and uh, business. Um, and my freshman year, actually, I sort of, you know, realized I was at this great business school, and yet I knew nothing about uh, finance or accounting. And 
uh, actually at, at university, um, we weren't allowed to take any finance or accounting classes until our second year. Um, and so I was always kind of, you know, I always loved learning a lot and I was, uh, you know, always loved reading books. And so I decided my freshman year, you know what, I'm going to pick up a book about, you know, investing and, and finance and kind of really see what it's all about. And I fell in love with it immediately. I, I think I read something like, you know, 10 books uh, that winter break and was just absolutely in love with investing. And I always kind of loved how, you know, investing sort of gave me the ability to to really kind of be curious about the world and sort of learn about, you know, how the world works. And I love kind of the treasure hunting aspect of investing as well. And so I I absolutely fell in love with it and I decided to actually drop engineering and then just completely spend all of my effort on, uh, you know, trying to become the best investor that I could be. Um, and so I actually, you know, that summer, my freshman summer, I cold emailed probably a thousand different investment firms um, and was really lucky to find a small uh, fund in Dallas. And that was kind of the first, you know, hedge fund that I worked at and I absolutely loved it. And so pretty much after that, I, you know, would intern and uh, with different hedge funds during the year and, and the summers. And I just kind of knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, and so after graduation, I was uh, I was lucky. I actually uh, decided to first spend some time in investment banking. So I worked at uh, Blackstone in the restructuring and reorg uh, group, which was basically working on distressed companies and helping them restructure um, and sort of come out of Chapter 11 uh, bankruptcy. And so that's kind of what I did at first. I realized pretty quickly that that is not what I wanted to do. Uh, and I did not enjoy it, um, mainly because I think I loved understanding it and working on, uh, you know, high quality businesses. And I didn't particularly love working on, you know, distressed companies as much. I think it was still a good experience, but I quickly realized uh, that's not what I wanted to do. And so I um, eventually found a, uh, you know, I interviewed a few different hedge funds um, and I eventually decided to join a fund that was just starting around that time uh, called Arab Global. Um, and the founder of that fund, Yen, is um, also uh, fairly active on Twitter, um, and he's a great guy. Um, I think, you know, I sort of talked about this earlier, how I always wanted to try and you know, have a, a positive impact on the world. And I've always tried my best to be like a good human being that really matters to me. And that's kind of how I define success. Um, you know, obviously, the investing space and, and Wall Street has a bad reputation, but there are some gems uh, still in the industry. And I think Yen is one of those people. He's a really good person. Uh, you know, one, I think, thing that really attracted me to that fund was that all the money we managed was for charitable foundations and endowments. Um, and so that gave some more meaning to the work we were doing. Um, and so I, I joined there very early on. Um, I spent a uh, little over five years there. Um, and we basically focused on uh, investing in high quality businesses around the world and making very concentrated investments. Um, and so, yeah, I was there for a number of years and I really, uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, but I think towards the last year or two, I kind of realized that, you know, it was maybe time for me to, to sort of, uh, you know, move on and sort of, you know, it was sort of time for the next step in my journey. And I think some of the reasons for that were one, you know, I, I talk about this a little bit on my Twitter as well, and I deeply believe it, you know, it's investing is all about knowing yourself. Um, and honestly, life is all about knowing yourself. And in terms of, you know, knowing myself, I kind of realized that, the type of investing we were doing, you know, I, I really enjoyed it, but there were some nuances in terms of, you know, how I think about investing. And obviously, you know, at the end of the day, it was Yen's fund. And so, you know, I kind of wanted to, to go out and sort of, you know, bet on myself and 
sort of, you know, uh, really, yeah, really kind of just bet on myself. And some of the differences, I guess, just really quickly, you know, um, Rob Global focuses on high quality businesses, mostly monopolies and oligopolies. Um, I really like that framework um, and uh, I really believe in it. But I think that my personal bent is towards what I call mispriced quality. So trying to find, you know, maybe smaller businesses or a little bit off the radar, you know, companies that I think can uh, compound capital faster. So anyways, there were some nuances like that. On top of that, I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. Um, I knew that for a long time, actually. Uh, you know, Yen and I had talked about it before I even uh, decided to quit. But for the last, you know, year or two before I quit, I'd been making a list of a lot of ideas of, you know, things I wanted to potentially work on. I have a list of, you know, at least a couple hundred ideas at this point. And I'm sure a lot of them are terrible ideas. But, uh, you know, I really wanted to do something entrepreneurial. Um, and so anyways, when I you know decided to quit, um, the idea that just kept jumping out at me was, you know, we have all these resources at this hedge fund that I work at. You know, we, uh, you know, we have so many resources at a, as a professional investor. And, and when I look at my, you know, friends and family that are in individual investors, there's just a massive gap and just a lot of room for improvement. Um, and so, you know, I decided that I would partner with my friend Bobby, who is the CTO. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm currently the CEO of Ticker. Um, and so I decided I would quit, partner up with Bobby and work on Ticker. And so the idea with Ticker was that, you know, uh, the Bloomberg terminal that everyone kind of uses um, at hedge funds or, you know, capital like your fact set, they cost $20,000 plus a year, extremely expensive, you know, completely out of reach for, for most people. On the other hand, you know, everyone kind of more or less uses Yahoo Finance and Google Finance. Um, and, you know, those are not very powerful tools. And so especially on the fundamental analysis side, there was just a lot of room for improvement. Um, and so Bobby and I, you know, decided to work on building Ticker. Um, and so for those of you who are not familiar with Ticker, we basically built a platform where, you know, we cover 100,000 plus stocks globally. We pretty much cover, you know, all the public equities. Uh, we have, you know, detailed financials, uh, Wall Street analyst estimates, uh, transcripts, filings, uh, news, a really powerful screener, and we track uh, ownership data. So you can look up the holdings of pretty much any fund in, in the whole world and sort of see what stocks they own in their portfolio. And I think one really cool thing is we track not only the 13F filings um, in the US, but we track their holdings globally. So if they've disclosed any of their holdings you know, all over the world, we're tracking that. And so it's a really good way to kind of get a holistic view of what those um, investors own. So the idea is really to try and empower um, individual investors to make better investing decisions. And you know, I think there's a lot of uh, really cool things that we're going to keep adding to Ticker and make it more and more you know, powerful um, for individuals. So that's kind of the quick, quick overview. And in terms of return ratios, we actually have an entire tab. Um, if you go to the financial section and then click on ratios, we have all these ratios that we talked about um, in that return ratios thread. Um, so I'll just pause there. I just kind of rambled on for a bit. So, yeah. No, no, not at all. It was very, very uh, interesting to listen to your story. Uh, so uh, you, you said you went through uh, a number of books uh, that, that got you interested into uh, investing and so on. Uh, could, do you mind? Uh, could, you, could you share a couple of uh, favorite books maybe that uh, that changed your approach to investing or that shaped the way you think about investing? So, something for us to. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. So, I mean. I think the books are pretty well known, um, but yeah, happy to share. I think my evolution as an investor was 
One that's pretty seems pretty commonplace. I think a lot of folks went through a similar transition. So early on, I was really enamored by you know special situations, event-driven type of investing. So kind of more complicated situations. And so some of the books that were really um, influential there were obviously Greenblatt's, you know, how you can be a stock market genius. Uh, not the best book title, but a great book. Um, also, uh, Margin of Safety by Seth Carmen. Um, those were probably the two really influential ones early on. And actually, when I was recruiting, did you actually pay two thousand no, dollars to no. get one of the? No, <laughs> I, I just I found a PDF. Um, but I was going to actually say it's funny when I was you know trying to figure out which fund I wanted to work at, I actually had an offer um, at Bowpost. So I actually met Seth Carmen, um, which was pretty cool. So. He did not give me a free copy of his book, but uh, it was pretty cool to meet him. He actually asked me a brain teaser uh, in the interview, but he was a really kind of nice, uh, you know, nice guy. So that was pretty cool. Um, so those two were really influential early on. Um, and so, you know, I kind of I think I have a thread on this, too, in terms of like how you find your how you should find your own investment strategy and your own investment philosophy, because, again, it's all about knowing yourself. Um and so for me early on, I think those were two books that I was really kind of enamored by. And I spent a lot of time, you know, looking at spinoffs and, you know, complicated liquidations and, and those types of things. Um, but I think, you know, over time, I realized that that wasn't really what got me most excited. And frankly, that's not where I was most successful in my own personal portfolio. So I kind of viewed my personal portfolio as almost a science lab. Um, and so I, I actually, for a number of years, ran it very diversified, experimenting with a lot of different ideas, trying to see what resonated with me, you know, how I reacted when there were market drawdowns, where was I strong, where was I weak? Um, and so kind of going through that process, I started realizing more and more that, you know, I was more, uh, I was stronger when I thought of the underlying stock as a business as opposed to a security. Um, and so I think I gravitated more and more towards, you know, quality and really understanding the fundamentals of the business. And so I think the books that became more influential later on, you know, obviously the most important were the were uh, Warren Buffett's letters. I mean, I think that is the best resource that everyone has, you know, at their fingertips. Everyone should read through every single letter that Buffett has written. It's insane. Like even the things he's written, you know, 20, 30 years ago. I, I, you know, I sometimes think I've come up with a, a new insight on investing and then I'll read one of Buffett's letters and he'll have, you know, he's figured it out 20 years ago. So I think, you know, I, I joke about this with one of my good friends who runs a, a, a well-known fund and he, he kind of says that, you know, he rereads these letters, you know, pretty much every year and he realizes that the gap between his own, you know, sort of thinking and, and the letters if that gets narrower over time. That means he's improving as an investor. So, so anyways, I think the Buffett letters are fantastic. Um, beyond that, uh, Greenwald's books, like Competition Demystified, amazing book in terms of thinking about businesses. Uh, really enjoyed that as well. Um, he has another one. Uh, uh, the name's escaping me. Uh, I think it's like from uh, Graham and Buffett and Beyond or something like that. Um, but he has a couple of books that are really good. Um, and then uh, there's also this book, Quality Investing, which I did a small a mini thread on, um, which is also just a fantastic book. So those would be some of the uh, books that I've, I think have been influential for me. So who wrote um, Quality me, Yeah, uh, the name is escaping me. Let me tell you that in a second. So it was done in conjunction with this fund. Um, here it is. Uh, so it's Quality Investing, Owning the Best Companies for the Long Term. 
and it is by uh, there's a few authors here. Um, sorry, is there a way for me to? Uh, yeah, Lawrence Cunningham is 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 the main uh, author. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, Lawrence Cunningham. Um, so that's a good one as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. he he has yeah. written so many books about about yeah, exactly. And, exactly. and so on, right? Uh, but but I really like this point that you made that investing is all about knowing yourself, and that that's an mm -hmm. absolutely valid point. And uh, I think Mor Morgan Housel or uh, somebody has this saying that uh, uh, the the best kind of investing strategy. For, for you is the one that you can stick with over a long period of time. And um, you cannot stick with something for a, yep. for a very long period of time unless you understand yourself and the strategy sort of fits you well. So that's um, exactly. that, that, that's a very, very valid point uh, for, for investors of all stripes. First, they have to understand themselves um, uh, in order to improve their investment. Yeah, exactly. Results. And, and you said you, exactly. you had like a hundred different ideas. Uh, so so if, if you had not started Ticker, what, what was the second idea on the list? <laughs> what, what would you have started if, if it was not for Ticker? That's an interesting question. Um, and I don't have a great answer to that um, because honestly, like I've been coming up with all these ideas. And as soon as I came up with Ticker, it was kind of like, that's where all my effort was going. Um, so you know, so for example, my, my dad works in the uh, HVAC space, so in the heating, ventilation, and, and AC space. So he had some interesting ideas because that's still an industry that, you know, is pretty old school and there's a lot of, you know, room for improvement there. So he had some ideas in terms of maybe working on some software um, in the HVAC space. So, you know, that was one potential idea. Um, but honestly, once I kind of... Um, came up with the idea for ticker it was pretty clear that that's where i should focus my effort because obviously that's very much in my circle of competence i really understand this space and i just think there's so much room for improvement and especially in the last couple of years obviously there's been um this you know new sort of uh wave of individual investors that are now investing in the market and so i think there's a lot of room for you know on the education piece which obviously you're very involved with and and i love obviously the work you do and i'm excited obviously that we're working together um, and then also in terms of, you know, empowering them with more powerful kind of tools, um, which is obviously what we're doing at Ticker. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think there are a lot of people who want to uh, ask you questions. So uh, what I'm going to do is uh, I'm just going to uh, start taking callers. And uh, if you guys have any questions about uh, either about return ratios for me or, or for Sahil, or you want to ask Sahil more about Ticker or so on, uh, please go ahead. So I'm I'm going to take the next caller. All right, the the caller after that, uh, his name is Viral. Hi, can you guys hear me? Yes. Yep. Okay, fantastic. Well, thanks for uh, having this session and allowing me to ask a question. So. I had a question regarding the ratios and how would you use them for a growing software company like, let's say, Roku or Net or any of such companies? And how would you apply these ratios to a high growth company? Thank you. Well, yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, sure. sure. Go, go yeah. ahead, Sal. You can start and then I'll jump in. Okay. Um, well, so um, a, a number of software companies um, and uh, gen generally high growth companies 
uh, one important thing to remember is the distinction between growth and return on capital. So uh, you can have companies that are growing very quickly uh, that don't have uh, high returns on capital. Um, so uh, you, you can have companies that are borrowing a lot of money and then uh, not, not earning a good return on the capital that is invested, um, uh, that, that they are investing into their operations and so on. I'm, I'm not saying that uh, Roku or one of these companies uh, is like that. Uh, I, in, uh, truth be told, I, I don't know much about uh, either of the companies that you mentioned. Uh, but growth does not necessarily always go hand in hand with return on invested capital. So um, you, you can have growth. Uh, so Professor uh, Michael Mauberson, he's he's done a lot of work on on this particular area. And uh, so when when you, uh, for example, calculate the value of a company by running a DCF uh, or something like that, uh, let's let's say uh, you you have a say a 15% discount rate or a 12% discount rate at which you're going to run your DCF, you're going to discount future cash flows at uh, say 12% to arrive at a fair value for the company. Now, it turns out that if a company is able to grow very fast, but it earns less than uh, whatever your discount rate is, say 12%, uh, then um, it, it, the, the growth is actually going to destroy value over time. Whereas uh, if it earns more than 12% uh, on its capital, then uh, it's going to add to value over time. So growth is not necessarily uh, good for value. Uh, growth can be good for value if uh, the business earns good returns on capital, higher than the discount rate that you're using. Uh, growth can be bad for value if uh, the business earns less than uh, its cost of capital or uh, the, the discount rate that you're using. So. Uh, Sahil, you want to go ahead and add to that? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Um, that that obviously is uh, sort of the you know foundational concept in finance. In terms of software, more specifically, what I would say is software is obviously a unique business model. You know, that is capital light. Um, so it's an asset light business. So its growth can be you know removed from the uh, you know invested capital. Said differently. You know, software businesses might require very little incremental capital to grow. Um, and so I think this is probably what you're alluding to, you know, return on capital may not be the best metric um, to use when looking at a software business in terms of thinking about its prospective growth. Um, and so, you know, I, I sort of make the distinction between using return on capital ratios to, under, to understand the underlying business quality. Um, and then second is to understand sort of, you know, prospective growth. So in terms of underlying, you know, business quality, return on capital ratios are obviously are still very helpful, um, even for a software business. But in terms of thinking about prospective growth, um, it's a capital light business. And so return on capital may not be the best way to think about that. Um, um, and so, yeah, I think about I think about this also when I'm thinking about, for example, acquisitive companies. You know, when I'm looking at acquisitive companies, return on tangible capital is a great metric to understand the underlying business quality. But return on, you know, invested capital is a better way to think about, you know, what is the capital, uh, what is the return that they're earning on their invested capital, including acquisitions. So there are nuances with all these return on uh, capital metrics. And uh, there's actually um, a, a number of pieces that have been written by uh, John Huber on basically capital light compounders as he talks about them versus capital intensive compounders. And so I think I would, 
uh, point you towards some of those resources too in terms of thinking about return on capital for an asset light business like a software business. Thank you. I'll definitely go over the John Huber pieces that you mentioned, Sahil. Thanks, Sahil, and then get right. Yeah, yeah no problem. Thank you. Yeah, and I think uh, there's another guy, Connor Leonard, who wrote some of those with him, who's written some really good stuff. So, yeah, check that out. Absolutely. So uh, I'm, I'm going to take the next caller, uh, who is uh, Casey. Yeah, hi, guys. How are you? Good. Uh, a couple Good, questions. How are you? Uh, the first question was for Sahil. Um, uh, with, with Ticker, how would you compare it to Ycharts and its functionality and cost and competitive advantages? Uh, obviously, Bloomberg Terminal is like the, the gold standard, and it seems like Ycharts has taken, uh, taken the world by storm, at least on the retail side, from what I can see on Twitter the last half a decade. So how does... So if I, I use Ycharts, for instance, why would I switch to Ticker instead of using Ycharts? Or, or is it completely different uh, software? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. Um, and you know, first of all, I'll, you know, I will say, you know, I respect obviously all of our competitors, um, including Y Charts. Um, I do think a lot of Y Charts customers tend to actually be a little bit more on the institutional side. Um, so you know, Y Charts price point is a lot higher. So if you look at, you know, we're currently um, uh, offering a fifty percent lifetime discount to anyone signs up before January second for the Pro uh, subscription, um, and so that comes out to just fifteen dollars a month. Uh, roughly for the annual plan and twenty dollars a month for the monthly plan. Um, so I think that's materially uh, cheaper than Y Charts. So I think that's one part of the value proposition. Uh, the other part is that you know Y Charts actually uses, um, I believe, Morningstar data, which tends to be a little bit lower quality um, than uh, you know we use Capital IQ as well as a number of other data vendors. I think what we what we wanted to do with Ticker was really make sort of more institutional quality resources available to individuals. Um, I think YCharts is one of the more legacy players um, that was first trying to sort of address this need. And, and I guess before that, even it was Morningstar. So YCharts effectively, you know, uses Morningstar data and, and tried to build a better UI around it. Um, so we're sort of focused on using uh, higher quality data and, you know, making it more affordable. I think on top of that, we have effectively a one-stop shop for a lot more resources than you can find on even YCharts. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, we have transcripts, filings, ownership data, um, so on and so forth, which I believe you can't really get on YCharts. And I also think we have much better data coverage um, than YCharts as well. Um, so we cover, you know, 100,000 plus stocks globally. Now, having said that, obviously, YCharts does have some other, uh, you know, uh, economic indicators and so on and so forth that we don't currently have on Ticker. Um, and so we... Uh, you know, obviously, we'll be adding more and more things to Ticker over time. Um, I think we're much more focused on fundamental analysis um, as well. So hopefully that helps. You know, let me know if you have any other questions there. Yeah, thanks. I'll, I'll definitely check it out. I would say that, uh, you know, Ycharts is definitely more expensive. And uh, I think you have a, a free uh, a free uh, trial yeah, you can try. Sure. So I, I'll, I'll definitely um, th this question is for 10K. Um, uh, Sahil, you had mentioned the, the Joel Greenblatt book. Uh, the other book he wrote was uh, 10K was kind of around the, the notion of, you know, uh, instead of owning a really concentrated portfolio where you have to accept 30%, 40%, 50% drawdowns and have to stomach that, uh, diversify with more companies and really focus on the simplistic type, type view of return on assets and earnings yields. Uh, can you comment on the notion of this, this rather simplistic, even if it's just getting your ideas from that, that, that starting point of ROA and earnings yields. Uh, do, you, do you believe in his notion, Joel Greenblatt's notion of 
of ROA and earnings yield as a as a two really important factors to, to start from? Uh, yes, absolutely. So um, this touches upon uh, a, a set of concepts, really, this question that you asked. And um, uh, so, so these, these concepts are extremely important to understand for any investor. So let me uh, break down these concepts uh, a little bit. So there is this distinction between what a company earns on its capital and what an owner of the company earns on their capital. So uh, if you take uh, ROA or ROIC or any of these ratios, uh, that is basically what the company is earning on the capital uh, that the company already has invested into it. So for example, to give you a, um, so let, let, let's say we have a company, it's got uh, $1 billion worth of assets or something. These assets could be factories or uh, inventory or receivables or whatever, one, $1 billion worth of assets. And the company earns, say, $250 million on these assets every year. So that's a 25% return for the company. But if you, as an investor, uh, you go and buy this company for $2 billion, say. Now, right. when you buy this company for $2 billion, you get $1 billion worth of assets. And the company is earning 25% on those assets. But your return as an owner of the company is not going to be 25%. Because uh, you bought the company for $2 billion. You paid twice what the company had in assets. So if you just take the earnings of the company each year and put it into your pocket, what happens is you've spent $2 billion, but uh, the, the company earns $250 million, uh, but that's only 12.5% of uh, uh, $2 billion. So the company may earn 25% on its assets, but you are earning only 12.5% on your investment. And that is why the second point of what you mentioned, which is the earnings yield, right? So the yield is basically the yield on uh, purchase price, the yield on your cost. That is also important because that is an indicator of value. So the return on invested capital is an indicator of business quality. And the yield is an indicator of uh, how, how good a price you're getting. And they are both important for uh, an investor to realize good returns from buying a company. Yep. The only thing I would add is, um, and I think that's a great summary. The only thing I would add is the yield is only one driver of your returns as a holder of that business, right? Growth is obviously another big driver and change in the multiple or change in the yield. Those are kind of the three drivers of your investment. Um, and so, you know, I think it's a great starting point to find potentially, you know, if this is your investment style, again, it's all about knowing yourself. This is not my personal investment style, but you know, I think it's a great starting point if that is, you know, your investment style, but obviously do the qualitative diligence to understand, you know, what would earnings power look like in five years? Is that growing? Is that declining? And you have to factor that um, into your, you know, return or your IRR calculation uh, on a go forward basis. Okay, thanks, guys. Absolutely. So let's take the next, next caller. Uh, his name is uh, Sashi. Hi guys, uh, are you audible? Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. you are audible. Uh, so first of all, uh, thank you. Thanks, uh, 10K and uh, thanks, uh, Sahil, uh, for setting this up. Um, uh, I really love your product, Tika. I'm actually a paid uh, customer. <laughs> 
So yeah. Oh, thanks for yeah. your support. <laughs> so uh, also 10K, I'm a big uh, follower of uh, your uh, tweets. Uh, I've actually gone back uh, to, from your original tweet. I've been trying to you know learn a lot of uh, concepts that you have been presenting. Um, so quick. Yeah. So quick. Oh, question, thank you so much. Uh, what I wanted to know is uh, uh, when you are searching for a company, do you focus on free cash flow generative companies, uh, or do you focus on companies that uh, reinvest uh, all their earnings back to the, you know, back to the business? Because uh, what my understanding is, if a company has, if a company is throwing a lot of cash. It will eventually, you know, uh, it uh, it just sits in their cash position. You know, they don't get reinvested. So also, if a company uh, has a high returns of capital, you know, that capital is actually uh, that return is actually coming from the previous capital, not the uh, new capital that's put in. Yeah. So just wanted to know your framework uh, when right. you're searching for opportunities. Uh, you know, do you search for companies? That are free cash flow generative, or any company that you know has this uh, reinvestment capabilities. Yeah, that's my question. Thank you. Right, right. Uh, that that is a wonderful question. So the answer is, uh, I look for both kinds of companies. So some companies uh, they are uh, in what is called uh, growth mode, where uh, they generate cash every year. But then what they do is they don't generate any free cash flow because all this cash which they generate, all the operating cash flow of the business, they are going to reinvest it back into the business uh, in the hope of growing over time. And this is perfectly fine uh, as long as they are earning good returns and as long as the growth materializes and as long as I'm reasonably confident that in the future, uh, this growth will actually materialize and they are building their moat and they are going to stay around for some time and, and so on. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, there are companies that are generating so much cash uh, that they are not able to reinvest all of it back into their own business. Uh, these are somewhat more mature companies. So if you take companies like MasterCard or uh, Starbucks or Home Depot or any of these companies, they are all uh, fairly large companies, $100 billion plus companies. And uh, uh, so, so MasterCard may make uh, some, something like $8 billion a year or $10 billion a year. And they're not going to be able to invest all the $10 billion back into their own business to grow over time. So what they do is they, they return the money either through dividends or buybacks or any of these things. And that's also perfectly fine. If, they, if they're not able to reinvest the money back into their own operations, uh, they, they return the money back to uh, shareholders. And that, that's perfectly fine as well. Uh, so what, what I like to do is I like to make sure I'm getting a decent price. So if the company can reinvest its earnings at good rates of return for a very long time to come, then I may be willing to pay a certain higher amount of price uh, per share of the company or whatever, uh, uh, because uh, the, these guys have opportunities to grow. Whereas uh, if a company cannot reinvest uh, the money, so the earnings are not probably not going to grow that fast, uh, then um, that factors into my valuation and I'm not willing to pay as high a price uh, for, for that company. So as long as, uh, as, as Buffett liked to say, growth is a component of value, uh, but growth is not the only driver of value. So you can have very successful investments 
uh, in both growing companies with uh, uh, not much in the way of free cash flow today, as well as in companies that have a lot of free cash flow and which are not growing that well. So both, both kinds of investments have a place in my portfolio. And uh, I'm perfectly happy to uh, invest in both kinds of companies as long as I understand them and so on. Uh, so 10K, uh, uh, so I mean, uh, what I'm trying to understand is suppose a company has a majority uh, of their equity in cash. When you are paying the price for that equity, uh, say, suppose you are paying uh, like uh, per share, like uh, $100, that $100 majority of uh, that part is going to sit on cash, right? I mean, only a small part will actually be deployed as an invested capital. Is that correct? Well, it really depends on the company. So some companies have very large cash balances on their balance sheet. Uh, other companies don't. So um, typically when a company keeps a very large cash balance for a very long time without investing it anywhere, uh, that's generally not a good deal for investors because uh, here's this company, it's keeping all this cash on its balance sheet. It's doing nothing with the cash. It's mm -hmm. not investing it. It's not returning it to owners. So that cash is just kind of locked there forever. So um, I, I'm, I'm generally not a fan of these companies, but then there are other companies that are holding on to the cash, but then eventually they'll find a way to invest it. So for example, Berkshire Hathaway is one famous um, uh, sort of canonical example of this thing. So they, they have hundreds of uh, billions of uh, dollars worth of cash on their uh, balance sheet. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, they, they, they don't have any opportunities right now to invest the money. Uh, but I'm reasonably confident that um, sooner or later, uh, they, they, they will find ways to uh, either reinvest it or if they can't, then return it to shareholders and, and so on. So it's really a, a judgment call that you have to take. Uh, if a company has a lot of cash, um, do you think this cash is just stuck there forever? Or do you think uh, sooner or later there will be opportunities to either reinvest it or yeah. if they can't then they will return it back yeah i suppose the quality of the management uh, depends on it uh, you know how they deploy the cash yeah Absolutely. Thanks, it's uh, a major factor in the questions thank you both sure also sahil just to uh, just so you know i'm a follower of yin leo as well uh, i've been uh, recently following his videos uh, really great thank you awesome yeah sounds good thank you thanks guys Yes, yeah, so so I, I recommend this to every, everybody on the call. Yen Liu is a, is a great guy, and he has some very nice uh, videos on YouTube. Uh, so if you have the time, uh, please go and listen to his uh, YouTube videos. Uh, they have a lot of points about uh, intelligent investing and and so forth. And I think we can we can learn a lot from from those videos. So, so I'm going to take the next caller. So uh, does any, anyone have uh, any other questions about uh, return ratios or, uh, or ticker or, or anything like that? So if, if anything in the thread was not clear, uh, so, so I, I would like to remind you all of uh, this wonderful saying I like from Confucius. So Confucius once said uh, that uh, um, if, if you ask a question, uh, you, you may look like a fool for a minute, but if you don't ask the question, uh, you may remain a fool for life. So in, in, in that spirit, uh, 
you know <laughs> uh, I, I encourage all of you to to ask as many questions as you can uh, so so if if anything is not clear at all uh, we are just here to help each other become better investors so if if anything is not clear just shoot a question it's it's perfectly fine so so we looks like we we do have a question uh, from tt Uh, you're I, uh, can you hear me? Yep. Yes. Hi, uh, hi guys. Uh, same as the previous caller, I'm uh, 10K. I'm a big fan of your tweets. And uh, Sahil, I'm a paid customer. I just want to thank you both. Uh, great work. <laughs> Thanks for your support. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's a fantastic product. And thank you, 10K, for all the uh, uh, Twitter threads. Um, I just have a quick question. Um, is I think it's a metric that uh, Warren Buffett articulated uh, many times, I think it's called something like return on unleveraged net tangible asset or something like that. I I, I never really found a way he calculate uh, that metric. I guess un, is it unleveraged net tangible asset? I just want to know how how you guys calculate that. Uh, is that something that um, we should pay attention to when uh, calculating our potential returns as a as an investor? Thank you. Uh, right, absolutely. So uh, Warren Buffett has mentioned this many times. Um, so the the metric that he likes to use to to judge the quality of a business is what is the return that the business can earn on uh, unleveraged uh, assets. Um, so uh, Warren Buffett likes to look at uh, tangible assets. So uh, when when he uh, buys something like these candies. They, they don't have very much in the way of uh, tangible assets. Uh, so these candies, maybe uh, they, they, they don't have any receivables because uh, when, when you buy a packet of these candies, you just pay for it uh, across the counter. So they don't have any receivables. They have uh, maybe a little bit of inventory. Um, you probably can't keep uh, chocolates for too long before they get spoiled and so on. So they have very low capital requirements. So their need for tangible capital uh, is very, very low. And uh, so all the earnings that they have in their business, uh, if you take their earnings and then divide by the uh, tangible capital, um, that, that is a, a fairly high number. It's like 60% or something like that, or at least it was 60% at the time uh, Berkshire went and bought these candies. Uh, so uh, this is a very, very high quality business because you know, if you if you invest 100k into this business, uh, in the first year it it makes 60k for you, uh, because it has that uh, wonderful 60% return on capital. Um, so Buffett loves this this kind of business. Um, the reason why he uh, talks about the unleveraged part is because um, it's easy to boost uh, um, returns by taking on leverage. So if you take say uh, let, let's say you have a business that uh, that that earns ten um, percent on capital. Uh, so so if you put in hundred dollars into the business, the business will will make uh, say say ten ten dollars per year for you. That's the ten percent return on capital. Now uh, you don't have to put in hundred dollars of your own money. What you can do is you can you can put in say fifty dollars of your money, and then you can borrow. Uh, another fifty dollars, and uh, now with this uh, hundred dollars into the business, 
what you can do is you can you can uh, earn ten dollars because the business earns ten dollars. The business doesn't care whether the hundred dollars came from borrowed money or your own money. It's going to earn ten percent on uh, capital. So you you put in hundred dollars of capital into the business, it earns ten dollars. Uh, so uh, let's let's say you pay uh, one one dollar of that ten dollars in in interest because you borrowed some money, but still you've earned about uh, nine dollars. So you put in fifty dollars. And then you earned nine dollars, so that that's a return of about eighteen percent. So what we have done is we've taken a ten percent earner and we have converted it into an eighteen percent earner simply by borrowing money, not using our own money for everything. We've uh, borrowed money, and uh, so it's very easy to sort of uh, increase our returns by using leverage. But if we use leverage, what happens is uh, companies that borrow a lot of money, we are they, they generally tend to be fragile. So, um, you know, if, if the company is not able to uh, uh, generate cash flows one particular year, it may not be able to make its interest payments and, and so on. So um, there are all kinds of risks associated with uh, taking on leverage. So during good times, leverage amplifies your return. But uh, during bad times, leverage can be really, really painful. So what Warren Buffett likes to do is he likes to look at uh, what the business can earn on an unleveraged basis. Uh, that gives him an idea of the quality of the business. And then of course, uh, he's willing to take on a reasonable amount of leverage in the business, which will amplify his returns. But then um, he's very clear that this amplification, it doesn't come from any improvement in the quality of the business or anything like that. It's almost a question of, uh, just a little bit of financial engineering to sort of improve the quality. And so he's very clear about what is intrinsic business quality uh, and what is uh, business quality that just happens to look a little bit better than it actually is because of leverage. Uh, so that's, that, that's how uh, I, I think Warren Buffett thinks about this. Uh, Sail, you want to add yeah. to that? Yeah, I think that's a great explanation. I just had one sort of minor point to add. I think the other reason why he looks at, you know, tangible capital uh, versus, you know, total invested capital is also because uh, I sort of mentioned this earlier too, return on tangible capital is a great metric to understand the underlying business. Uh, you know, uh, if, if, for example, a company makes an acquisition, um, you know, if they pay a huge premium, um, to the identifiable assets of that business, you have to record goodwill onto your balance sheet. Um, and so, you know, return on tangible capital is a better reflection of the underlying business quality. Return on invested capital also reflects the historical capital allocation decisions that that management team may have made. So if they made a really poor acquisition at a very high price, that would be reflected in return on invested capital. Um, but it could be the underlying business quality could still be very high. It could just be that management made very poor you know, uh, acquisition decisions. And so I think that's another reason why, you know, Buffett, I think probably looks at return on tangible capital to really understand the underlying business quality and, and kind of separate that from the uh, historical capital allocation decisions. Uh, absolutely. That, that's a great point. Perfect. Thank you both. Okay. So let's take, uh, uh, so it looks like Katie has another question. Yeah. Hi. So, um, so, you know, Buffett, you just mentioned, he, he really looks at a uh, high rate of return on tangible assets. Um, 
I think Sahil, you might have mentioned this in the beginning of the the call, but um, you guys probably have uh, your own couple of metrics, or maybe you don't. But can you just list one or two metrics that you guys use as a starting point? You said that when when I mentioned ROA and uh, earnings yield earnings yield earlier, you said that wasn't your style. Um, can you guys give us a metric or two that you guys use as a starting point? Uh, well, I I don't think I said that that was oh my sorry that was, that was no 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 see, yeah that was me. Said, yeah, yeah, said yeah yeah well okay yeah so um, if Sahil said that uh, Sahil has to defend what he said so I'll I'll leave Sahil to answer that <laughs> yeah yeah for sure I I wasn't referring to those metrics as much as the investment philosophy that those metrics imply um, and so I think you know the the philosophy I think the, in general the philosophy around uh, you know that magic formula is finding uh, really cheap companies that have had, you know, historically high returns on capital. I think that's a great starting point. Um, but again, for my personal investment philosophy, I tend to focus more on businesses that have high reinvestment runways and can, and, you know, reinvest at high returns on capital. And a lot of times those types of companies show up very poorly on those two metrics that you're discussing. Cause you know, those metrics generally uh, favor more mature companies. And so, you know, again, for me personally, those are not the metrics I tend to focus on. I will also say that um, I think these return ratios are important. And, you know, we, we briefly talked about this in the thread as well. Um, you know, just calculating uh, numbers is, is kind of the first step. You really need to think critically about it. Um, and so I personally spend a lot more time on the qualitative side, uh, really understanding, you know, what has driven historical growth and you know is that sustainable is there a real mode here what does the tam look like unit economics those are the types of questions that i spend uh, a lot more time on um yes i, I also look at uh, unit about economics you, and, and things like that um so i try to understand uh, the movement of capital in and out of the business and um, uh, so 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 uh, to, to give you an example, uh, so so let's let's say you have a business where uh, you you can uh, you you buy something for uh, say uh, ten dollars and then you you sell it for fifteen dollars, okay? And uh, so so you make five dollars every every time you do this. Now there are two possible uh, scenarios here. Um, so one one possible scenario uh, is uh, you buy something for ten dollars. And uh, you have to pay the the seller, your supplier, uh, who, who gives you this. You have to pay the supplier ten dollars. So you pay the supplier ten dollars, and and then eventually you sell this item for fifteen dollars to your customer, and you you've uh, you, you basically made a a, a a profit on on your um, on your ten dollar investment. The other kind of business is where you, you go to your supplier and you get this thing for $10, mm-hmm. but then you don't have to pay the supplier right away. Uh, you can go and sell this thing to your customer for $15, and then you can go and give your supplier the cash uh, saying, okay, hey, I bought this uh, thing from you for, uh, for $10 the other day, and so here, here's the cash for that. Yeah. Now, uh, from an external observer standpoint, uh, there may not be much of a difference between these two. Uh, so in both cases, uh, you buy something for $10 and sell it for $15, you've pocketed $5. But look at the return on capital in the two cases. In the first case, you need $10 of capital. Right. Uh, 
uh, only then you uh, you can you can you can go and buy something for ten uh, dollars from from your supplier. Um, in in the second case, you need zero dollars of capital. So with zero capital, uh, you you have made five dollars, right? So I try to understand the movement of capital in and out of a business, and so that means I try to understand. Okay, how much capital does this business need? How efficiently is it operating? So, what what do its uh, receivables look like? What do its inventory look like? How efficient is it on working capital? Uh, all these kinds of things I try to uh, analyze. Um, so, I have this uh, in in our recent thread that we Sahil and I wrote. We have this uh, checklist of things to um, to consider, and uh, one of those things is return on. Uh, capital and return on uh, incremental invested capital and and things like that, and so all those questions are about you know if you want to produce one dollar of earnings out of this business, how much capital uh, do you need to invest into the business, and uh, so so if you understand th- this type of question like what 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 are all the sources of capital like uh, where is the capital coming from. Uh, how is it moving in the business? Uh, how much do they need in inventories? How much do they need in receivables? All all these different aspects of how capital moves in and out of a business. Uh, that will tell you whether this is a good business or not, and whether it is being run uh, well by management in a capital efficient way or not. So I I look at all these things when I uh, look for investing uh, look look for investment candidates. Yeah, and maybe just to answer your question more directly, obviously there are some financial metrics that I, I do sp- spend time looking at. I may look at all of these, but I think some of the ones that I spend more time on are uh, gross margins. I definitely spend time you know, trying to find companies that have generally high and stable gross margins because I think that's one of the best reflections of the industry structure and potentially uh, you know, an indication of a, of a potential moat there. It also indicates potentially a strong value proposition. Um, so I tend, tend to look for businesses with high and stable gross margins, as well as you know high and, and stable uh, returns on capital, returns on invested capital, returns on incremental invested capital, returns on tangible capital, which are obviously um, you know all these metrics that we've been talking about. So I, I do spend time looking at all of those for sure. Well, well thank you. And just as a f- quick follow-up question, I was listening to a podcast with uh, uh, where, where uh, Dev. Uh, Contessaria with Valley Forge Capital was talking about how he doesn't like using stock screeners. So someone like me who's new to investing in public companies, if I put in, in Y charts or in a ticker, you know, in a stock screener, ROA and, and earnings yields, um, Dev was basically saying he, he's, not, he's not fond of using uh, stock screeners as a way to, to, for using these metrics to find the companies that he invests in. So can you guys just you know, give insight into how you start to find these companies? Do you use a stock screener or are you not a fan of stock screeners? I, I personally love uh, stock screeners uh, and I, I love finding ideas from all sorts of places. So I like to have a very open mind around idea generation. I know people say that. And I think, you know, part of the reason they say that, you know, they don't like screeners is also what I was alluding to, which is that, uh, uh, you know, earlier, which is that, you know, these metrics are, you know, backwards looking and sometimes they don't best reflect the long-term economics of the business. And so the screener, you know, can't obviously capture what earnings power is going to look like in five years. That's obviously your job as an investor to figure out. Um, but I still think that a screener is a you know a great place to find potentially interesting ideas. Um, you know, Buffett's obviously talked about how he would go through a massive manual, right, and, and sort of really go through 
a lot of companies to find a few gems. Um, and so I really believe in that approach of keeping an open mind, you know, trying to find ideas from all sorts of places, whether that's a screener, whether that's looking at, you know, the holdings of other uh, thoughtful investors. And I think that's another great thing about Ticker. Um, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but we track global holdings that are publicly disclosed and we have a really easy way of uh, looking up, uh, you know, uh, really thoughtful investors. So we actually have uh, four different columns on Ticker, uh, growth at a reasonable price, uh, growth, aggressive growth and other. And so we kind of break it up by investment strategy. And you can see a lot of investors that you might not have even you know, heard of before um, that are really thoughtful and you can kind of look at their holdings. I think that's another great way to find uh, interesting ideas. And then obviously just, you know, thinking about uh, when you find an interesting company, looking at the entire value chain, looking at the suppliers, the customers, competitors, and and sort of, you know, looking at the whole, uh, yeah, the value chain to find potentially interesting ideas. So I, I personally keep an open mind and I love the idea generation process. Um, uh, Yan used to say that was my superpower. So that's the part of investing that I love the most. Um, so yeah, I definitely, I use screeners personally. I don't have any secret formula or any secret screeners. I, I just, you know, will run screens, you know, might output several hundred companies, a thousand companies, and then I will literally go uh, one by one. And I think that's part of my competitive advantage. I don't, uh, I don't uh, mind doing some of the more mundane work or what may be mundane for other people. I love that kind of grind of going through hundreds of companies and trying to find uh, a gem. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a great answer, Sahit. So uh, I, I haven't used screeners extensively in the past, but I don't see anything wrong with using a screener. So a screener uh, to me is something like a filter. And like any filter, uh, sometimes uh, it's going to throw out uh, uh, a number of good companies. So there may be some really good companies that the filter just misses because uh, the stocks don't screen well for whatever reason. Um, and sometimes uh, this, the filter may uh, end up uh, showing you a list of companies and some of those companies in that list may not be that great as investment ideas. So uh, it really depends on the screener, uh, uh, the, the, the screening criteria that you use and, and so on. Um, but I, I like to use the results of a screener as a starting point for further research. So I'm not just going to... Uh, screen for something, say, you know, more, more than 10% growth in the last five years, uh, earnings growth, and then return on capital or something like that. And then uh, whatever the screener throws out there, I'm not going to immediately go and rush in and buy those stocks. So the screener is just something that helps me identify potential ideas for further research. And uh, for that kind of uh, purpose, I don't see anything wrong with uh, using a screener. Okay, great. I have another question, but I'm going to let Shashi go ahead and ask, and I'll call back in. Okay, Thanks, guys. all right. Shashi, you want to you want to ask the question? Hi, uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. So uh, previously, when you were talking about uh, leverage, uh, I mean, uh, it just uh, I just uh, previously had some. Uh, you know, uh, I was looking at a few companies and I found certain companies, they have enough cash, say uh, like 50 billion of cash, but still they take on leverage 
up to 20 billion uh, yeah so i i just want to know uh, is it like a warning sign or why do you think uh, these companies do like that because they have plenty of cash you know but why do they still go and take uh, uh, debt is it some way to boost the uh, you know uh, profits or uh, that's what i wanted to understand thank you yeah uh, right so there are there are two possible reasons um, why a company may have a lot of cash and then may still decide to take on debt. Uh, so one possible reason is something like uh, Apple. Uh, so they have a lot of cash on their balance sheet, um, ca cash and uh, marketable securities and, and things like that. Um, but all this cash is parked outside the country. And um, if they need cash for, uh, say, uh, stock repurchases, or if they need cash to build a factory inside the country or something like that, then they have to bring cash from outside the country into the country. And when they do that, there are some tax consequences. Uh, so to avoid paying that tax, they may just decide to borrow money, especially if they can get this money at a, at a very, very low rate of interest or something like that uh, on very favorable terms. So that is one reason why a lot of companies that have a lot of cash may still decide to borrow some money. Uh, the second reason is uh, Buffett makes this point in his annual letters, which is that, uh, you know, uh, for, for a company, uh, cash is never available when you need it. Uh, so uh, typically, companies will need a lot of cash uh, when when there is a downturn or something like that. And at that time, there will be a credit market uh, crunch and they may not be able to borrow the cash on attractive terms. So when cash is available, you just borrow it. And, uh, you know, if, if there are, uh, uh, if, if you can get it at a fairly low rate of interest and uh, fairly generous terms and so on, uh, some companies may take the view that, uh, you know, we, we'll just borrow the money because we can get it at a very cheap price. So we'll borrow it. And then uh, later, we, we always have the option of uh, either uh, paying down this debt early or uh, we can uh, use our cash for other things or maybe some acquisition will come along at a later date and so on. So at the time we need money, we may or may not be able to get our hands on it. But right now money is available cheap. So let's just borrow and then um, uh, you know worry about how to use it later so that's another reason why uh, companies may do that so th those are the two reasons i can think of uh, off the top yep. of my head great great answer i've not thanks thanks that makes sense thank you sure so let's let's take uh, casey's uh, next question so so by the way i just want to say that um, uh, so Sahil uh, told me that he has a flight later today. Yes. So if, yeah, if this he's is probably the last question. That, uh, yeah. <laughs> just, uh, so, so if you're running late for that, feel, feel free to duck out anytime. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate it. This will probably be the last question uh, I can uh, help answer. Sure. Okay, great. Uh, so just continuing on the theme of, of stock screeners, stock screeners uh, I, I'm just curious, generally speaking, uh, so like... Um, if you're a, just a retail investor like myself and you're, you're searching on, on wide charts or even on ticker and you, um, you're looking for equities and all you can really find are equities in North America and Canada or in the U.S., um, why isn't it more available or more ubiquitous for, for people to be able to search uh, global equities on different exchanges? Why is the world of software or I guess the world of finance not brought us to a place where people can 
buy on other exchanges. Like if you, like if you want to invest in, in, in a Chinese equity, you have to actually, if you don't want to buy the, the ADR, you have to actually get on the phone with the international trading desk and call and say, I want to buy Alibaba. And they have to do, the, I'm just curious, why is not we come to a place where we can search for equities in Japan or equities in, you know, anywhere in the world? Why is, why is it still in Y charts? You can only search for equities in North America. So, so I guess, yeah, first thing to answer there, and this is a big part of Tigger's value proposition, we have coverage of all the equities. So literally, like all, like all global equities. So on Ticker's screener, you can find Japanese stock, stocks, Polish stocks, Chinese stocks, you know, you name it, uh, we have it on Ticker. So that's a big part of the value proposition. And again, I would definitely encourage you to check that out. Um, so that's in, on the research front. In terms of trading, which is the second part of this, um, I think that still is uh, a little bit harder. So I personally use uh, interactive brokers, which gives you probably some of the best coverage. Uh, um, you know, there's still certain countries that are not on the platform. Um, and usually that's usually around some sort of regulatory issues with that particular country. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, I, again, I would definitely recommend you check out um, the ticker screener and just ticker in general, because we do cover... Um, global equities. And I think that's a huge differentiation versus Y charts. I frankly don't understand uh, how Y charts is so expensive. So wait, so when you say I can do a, a, a research on global equities, are these only global equities that are trading OTC or no. global equities? That are oh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's literally global equities. So you can find things listed on Japanese exchanges like Indonesia, India, you name it, we have it. So even if it's not trading OTC, even if it's not trading OTC, and the screener also lets you uh, screen by specific exchanges, uh, it lets you screen by specific countries. Um, so yeah, I would highly encourage you to to check it out. Yeah, I definitely will. Awesome. Yeah, I, I don't really know know the answer to this question. Why why are you not um, able to buy shares in pretty much any country in the world? So I I try to use interactive brokers. Uh, but uh, I, I tried to print a simple monthly statement and then I had to go through 10 different screens to try and do that. Yeah, it's a terrible UI. <laughs> Interactive Brokers is a terrible UI. It is not user-friendly. Right. So I, and I that's couldn't one figure of my, it out. So I, I, yeah. I closed my account with Sorry, them and now, now I'm with uh, Charles yeah. Schwab and others and <laughs> I'm perfectly happy. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's, a, that's one of the uh, 200 ideas I have on my list. Uh, because I think interactive brokers is just a horrible UI, but the benefit is that they have the best kind of global coverage um, um, in terms of being able to actually trade those securities. But yeah. Got it. Well, th thanks for the input, both of you. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Awesome. Absolutely. So yeah, I'm going to have to hop off, but I really enjoyed this. Um, so, so thanks so much for putting this together, uh, 10K Diver. And uh, yeah, excited to, to partner with you and work on other threads in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and answering all our questions uh, so so patiently. So um, let's let's uh, give give Sahil a very big thank you and send him on his flight. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, everyone. Uh, happy holidays, and I uh, hope you guys have a great New Year. Yep. yep as well. All right. Uh, Sahil has left the call. It looks like. So um, if if you guys have uh, any any further questions for me on um, on return ratios or any, anything else I discussed in the thread or any, any, anything like that, not now is a good time to ask those questions.
Yeah, 10K, can you talk about the accounting equation where shareholders' equity plus liabilities equals the, the assets? I'm still, I just was trying to do a little bit of research before I did the call, but I don't understand enough of it to, to understand it. Uh, so any any company is going to have a certain amount of assets in the company. And uh, those assets are going to be uh, financed by two, two kinds of uh, uh, factors. One of it is equity and the other one is uh, liabilities. So um, assets is basically everything the company owns. Liabilities is everything the company owes to other people. So you just take assets and subtract the, subtract out the liabilities. So assets minus liabilities. And that quantity which you get, assets minus liabilities, that is called shareholders equity. So there's nothing else that's more complicated or anything like that. So you, is that the same? Is that the same as book value? Yes, book book value is uh, the, the pretty much the same as uh, shareholders equity. So so take all okay. the assets, subtract all right. out all the liabilities, and what you're left with is called uh, equity. So if you just rearrange the equations a bit, uh, you will get assets equals liabilities plus equity, or assets minus liabilities equals equity. They are both the same equation. Okay, got it. Okay, uh, I'll take the next caller. So it's uh, Pratik. Um, hey, Tenke, uh, big fan of your threads. Um, hey. so I, I do have like one question. So, so now after like reading all the ratios now, okay, I understand the concept of the ROIC. Uh, but one thing that I still don't know is how do I like just look at a financial statements of a company and calculate that number? Um, so I was wondering if it's possible right. for you and if it's, uh, if you're interested, like, can you take a real company, a real example and like, just like make some content like going through the financial statements and actually like helping us how to figure out that ratio. Uh, right. So this is a great idea. So how do you take a real company and take its um, financial statements and then try to figure out what its ROIC is? Now, um, yeah. one caveat is that uh, two different people can take the same set of financial statements and they can come up with two different ROICs. Because uh, one person may be using, say, earnings before uh, interest and taxes, EBIT, uh, to calculate as right. ROIC. The other person may be using something like free cash flow or, uh, or earnings after tax or something like that. So there's no real standard definition of what ROIC is. So um, each, each person has their own kind of definition. And so when they analyze financial statements, uh, they could do it in two different ways and you can get two different ROICs. So uh, it's more important to sort of understand the core concepts uh, and to apply them intelligently to companies as opposed to uh, having some formula or something like that that works for all companies. You just apply this formula to the financial statement and then you get your answer. It's not as simple as that. Um, so, so for example, if you if you take a company like Starbucks, just to give you one example, right? Yeah. So Starbucks um, actually uh, has negative equity. So if you go to their uh, uh, balance sheet and then you, yeah. you look at the total assets and then you look at the total liabilities, the liabilities are actually greater than the assets. So uh, what is Starbucks's return on equity? 
that there is no answer to this question because equity is actually negative there's <laughs> there's no equity in the in right. the company um but they do have a return on invested capital so when um, when starbucks tries to uh, go and uh, open a new store in china for example um so how much does a new store costs um so a new new store in china may cost something like 250k uh, to build mm-hmm. and then you know that store will require a certain amount of uh, working capital in in terms of uh, you know they they may need some coffee beans and uh, and so on and so forth uh so so that 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 yes. cost another uh, uh, whatever uh, 50k or something something like that so so you have the 300k mm-hmm. of capital that goes into the store and then you have to sort of figure out uh, how much the store will make in any particular year so if the if the store makes uh, say 50k per year or so, something like that so you you have this uh, 300k of investment and the store makes about 50k per year uh so so that um that that is about uh, 16% or something like that return on incremental invested right. capital uh but where do you get right. all these numbers from this uh, 250k and uh, this 50k and and all that well right. uh, you sort of have to uh, read the 10k uh, you have to look at uh, what disclosures the company is making you have to have some feeling for how the business works how much capital they need and and so on so some of this is available in the financial statements some of this is not available in the financial statements you have to go and read the 10k and the 10k will have a section uh, after the financial statements called the notes to the financial statements so you have to go and read the notes to the financial statements to try and figure out some of these things so um, you know buffett had this uh, saying where uh, it's almost like uh, a project in investigative journalism so what what you're trying to do is you're trying to investigate you're like a reporter you you're trying to investigate a company and your your job is to figure out how much it's worth and if you can buy it for less than whatever it's worth so uh, it's <laughs> there's no straightforward answer to this so, so no wonder it is not easy to find uh, yes absolutely okay i see okay yep thanks that that was really helpful so i'll i'll take that absolutely take the next question from uh, raj uh raj has suddenly disappeared so <laughs> uh, raj i think you're on mute uh yeah am am i audible now Yes. Oh yeah. Hi, thank you, Daniel. Uh, thanks a lot for answering such such uh, you know wonderful uh, questions. So one question that that I have in mind uh, is is regarding the ROIC versus ROCE, right? Now, why would anybody right. do two different ratios when one ratio like ROIC itself can give you indication about how uh, the business is 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 doing? uh well so the two different ratios have two different purposes um, so if you look at roic what uh, people mean when they say roic usually is they take all the capital uh in the business that has been invested into some operation so for example if if you take uh, apple um how, how much capital have they uh, invested 
into into uh, into fixed assets and and uh, into into developing uh, iPhones and getting patents and and so on. So all this capital that has already been invested, uh, what is the return they are earning on this invested capital? That is ROIC. ROC, on the other hand, is forget about all the capital that's been invested by Apple. Just look at all the capital that Apple has. You know. So Apple has far more capital on its hands than it is invested. So it's got billions of dollars worth of cash and uh, uh, other marketable securities and, and so on. So a big part of this capital hasn't actually been invested into any kind of uh, um, company operations, but it still has all this capital. It's just not invested it. So if you take the total capital that Apple has, uh, what is the return it's earning on that capital? So obviously, when you take only the invested capital and take Apple's uh, earnings, uh, it's going to be earning a higher percentage on the invested capital than on uh, the total capital it has. So ROIC uh, for Apple is going to be higher than ROC. Now, which is a good ratio to use for Apple? Is ROIC a better ratio or ROC a better ratio? Yeah, that, that was my exact question. Yeah, because, you know, the right. cash component in, in the way you explain for Apple, that actually skews the whole equation here, right? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So now you, now you have to sort of have some view of the future. So uh, you have to ask yourself, uh, Apple has all this extra cash that it has not yet invested. Uh, so are they going to be in, able to invest it in the future into some uh, interesting projects? And if they are able to invest it in the future, what returns will they earn on that investment? Or if they are not able to invest it in the future, will they return this money to shareholders? For example, by doing buybacks or by giving out a dividend or something like that. So you have to have some view of what Apple is going to do with all this cash that it has. And depending on what view you have, you may come up with a different valuation for this cash. So for example, a long time ago, um, uh, maybe maybe four or five years ago, uh, when Warren Buffett first bought into Apple, um, he had some view that, uh, okay, Apple is going to spend uh, a big chunk of this cash on buybacks. And uh, he, he took a view that, um, so sooner or later, this cash uh, will eventually be returned to uh, shareholders in, in the form of buybacks and dividends. And so he was comfortable investing uh, in Apple. But at the time when Steve Jobs was running the show, uh, there were no dividends. There was no buybacks, nothing. Um, so Apple was just piling on billions and billions and billions of dollars of cash on its balance sheet without doing anything with it at all. No dividends, no buybacks, nothing. And at that time, uh, Buffett had uh, absolutely no view on what Apple is going to do with this cash. So he, he never, uh, he's been following the company for a long time, but he never bought shares or did anything because he had absolutely no idea what, what's going to happen with this cash. So before you do, uh, if, before you make an investment, um, you, it, it's a good idea to ca calculate both ROIC and ROCE uh, or some reasonable approximation thereof and to have some view about uh, whether uh, the two of them are eventually going to become equal or not. Yeah, thanks. So uh, a follow on that question now, <clears throat> between ROIC and ROIIC, uh, do, right. do we have, I mean, are they related or these, these are uh, 
there are two people who would like Right. So, so you were breaking up a little bit. Uh, so if, if I understand you, the, the question is, what is the relationship between ROIC and ROIIC? Uh, right. So ROIC is uh, return on invested capital. ROIIC is return on incremental invested capital. So there are many kinds of companies and uh, for some companies, ROIC and ROIIC may be the same thing. For other companies, ROIC and ROIIC may be uh, two completely different things. So I'll give you an example. Suppose, let's say uh, I've spent $100 and uh, I've, I've developed uh, some wonderful software product, say. Uh, and then let's say I can sell this uh, software product. I, I can use this software product to earn $100 every year from now on. So uh, my ROIC, my return on invested capital, is I spent $100 to develop this software, and I'm making $100 out of it every year. So I'm getting back my full investment every year. So my ROIC on this project is 100% per year. So I'm, I'm making a 100% return on my invested capital. Now the question is, suppose I have another $100. Can I uh, come and invest into this uh, uh, into the same software? Suppose I add extra features to this software by investing another hundred dollars into it. Now can I sell the software for two hundred dollars? Um, now if I if I'm able to do that, then the return I get on my incremental hundred dollars that is also hundred dollars per year because I invested an extra hundred dollars and I'm making an extra hundred dollars per year. So in this case, ROIC is equal to ROIIC. But suppose I cannot do that. So it, it doesn't matter, even if I throw an extra $100 down uh, on this particular software, even if I spend it and develop all these extra features, I still won't be able to get any money by selling them. Uh, so I'm still going to be getting the same amount of uh, money from selling my original software, $100 per year. So then my ROIIC is actually zero because I spent an extra $100 but I'm not seeing any return out of it. Uh, I'm just getting the same amount of money that I used to be getting. So, uh, so it really depends on the kind of business we have. So is this business able to take additional capital and is it able to reinvest that additional capital at the same rate of return that it is earning on its current capital? If the answer is yes, then ROIC is equal to ROIIC. But if the answer is no, um, then ROIIC may actually be much less than ROIC. Does that answer the question? Yeah, perfect. I got it. Thanks a lot. Okay. So one one more question. So let's let's make this. Uh, we are we are already pushing an hour and a half. So let's let's make this the last question. It's from uh, Shashi. Hi. Uh, so hey. quick question. Uh, so what I want to understand is uh, about ROIC. Imagine a company um, that has multiple businesses, for example, take Baba, yeah? So their co-operations, the ROIC is solid, but there are multiple businesses that they have ventured into, but they are not turning a profit at the moment. So those businesses, those uh, capital that is invested on those uh, non-profitable businesses, that will kind of uh, skew the overall ROIC, right? So 
what's the best approach to value companies like this that's my question thank you uh, right absolutely so there are plenty of companies that have multiple segments and there are companies that uh, make a large number of different bets and um, they they invest different amounts of capital into these different bets and some of the bets pay off big time and other bets they don't really pay off so uh, they they just lose the money on these bets uh, there is no easy way to sort of uh, predict whether uh, some eventual bet is going to pay off or not so if you uh, if you look at uh, jeff bezos's uh, annual letters um, so uh, i mean today we may not even remember it but at one point amazon uh, tried to make a phone so they called it the fire phone and uh, they they spent uh, uh, some hundreds yeah. of millions of dollars on developing this phone and then this phone was not successful and uh, so the return that they earned on that uh, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, they, they just lost all of it so it's uh, it's not even a 0% return it's a minus 100% return because they lost all their uh, capital uh yeah true. so uh, but bezos said that uh, at the time when the phone failed he said i'm going to keep making these experiments so this particular experiment did not work out but i'm going to be be trying a lot of different things and some will work out and some may not work out so ultimately you have to uh, sort of take a view on whether uh, whether some of these bets in the future will they work out or not and more importantly what happens if none of these bets work out then what happens uh, in in amazon's case they'll probably be fine even if none of their bets work out because they have uh, they have three or four massive businesses that are already extraordinarily successful so they'll probably be fine even if uh, a lot of these bets don't work out uh but there are other companies where you know the the next bet has to work otherwise the company is going to go under or something like that so they are two very different kinds of companies and uh, so i am generally not not very comfortable investing in companies where um they they they, they have to make a bet and then the bet has to work otherwise if it doesn't work then the company is in big trouble i don't like to invest in situations like this because i have no way of predicting what the result will be so i much prefer to invest in companies like uh, google True. and amazon where they already have a big cash cow which is producing tons and tons of money billions of dollars every year and then they may take a small amount of this uh, small portion of this billions of dollars and put it on some bet and then the bet may work or it may not work but overall it's not going to impact the survival of the company or anything like that i'm far uh in in my mind i find it much easier to bet on companies that that have uh already very successful operations do do you think amazon is still uh, in a growth stage or do you think it's kind of matured uh, because uh, if you see their net debt position it's it's uh, it's uh, you know they don't have like a uh, balanced cash position it's all you know minus so it means they are reinvesting everything uh, whatever they earn they are putting it back so uh, do you think like they they are still in a growth mode 
Oh. So um, Amazon has a lot of growth uh, ahead of it, uh, unless I'm very much mistaken. Uh, so I think they are still in growth mode and their growth is going to come from a variety of different factors. So Amazon has some three or four very important lines of business. So one line of business is their retail business, which is basically the amazon.com website. Now, uh, the retail business itself is split into two parts. The first part is uh, Amazon, the the first party retail. First party retail is basically anything that says shipped from and sold by amazon.com. So they they sell stuff uh, on their website. And uh, the other part of this business is the third party retail. Third party retail is basically uh, sellers uh, who have uh, contracted with Amazon to list their products on Amazon's website. Now the margins for third party retail are much, much higher than the margins for first party retail. So Amazon makes almost no money on first party retail, but they make an enormous amount of money on fulfillment and third party retail. And fulfillment and third party retail historically has been growing very strongly over the years. So uh, I don't see any uh, reason to suggest that uh, this, this growth is going to stop or anything like that in the future. So Amazon is this, uh, I mean, if you are a seller of something and uh, you, you want to sell something over the internet, uh, what is the place where there are the largest number of buyers? It is still Amazon. So if Amazon wants a 20% cut or... It's kind of a networking yeah, effect. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, if you want to, if Amazon is going to charge you 20% or whatever for fulfillment, Um, Many many sellers feel that they have no choice. They just have to continue paying whatever Amazon wants. Uh, So this third-party retail has uh, has a, at least it seems to me that it has a very good future. Um, Then there is AWS, which is the other big part of Amazon. And AWS has also been growing bonkers over the last several years. And a lot of uh, people, a lot of software is moving onto the cloud. And this is a very long-term trend and so on. And AWS is uh, one of the uh, companies that are, it's the market leader and it's positioned to do well there also. So I, I don't see any reason why this this trend is going to uh, stop or slow down or uh, any, any anything like that. Uh, then on top of that, they have advertising. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So advertising has also been growing very, very well over the years. So I, I see no reason to uh, say that Amazon's growth has stopped or anything like that. It seems to me that they are still growing. Thank you. Thank you. Great insights. Sure. Thank you. All right. So uh, thank you all very much. Uh, this was a lot of fun for me. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, let's let's meet next week again on Sunday at uh, 1, 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, until then, stay safe. Have a great week. Uh, Merry Christmas. Bye-bye.